0: It was always part of the plan to put a brewery in but for many years it, it was just a plan it's 100 percent acquisition of green beacon No, we had a chat with everybody anyone would have seen this coming a mile away you know the
1: passion and the, the dedication to beer and brewing oh yeah that's super simple and direct question it's always fun to get to speak about beer thanks to cry malt that's just what we're here to do talk about beer Or this week to drink beer and think beer as we chat with US beer writer and podcaster John Hull. Regular listeners will know that the Brews News team are avid listeners of John's podcasts and followers of his writings, so it's always great just to talk beer with him. This conversation was loosely prompted by a recent interview John had with Kim Sturdivant on his podcast. Kim Sturdivant is credited as being the creator of the Brute IPA, a beer style and style is very heavily air-quoted in that reference, that appeared, exploded and virtually disappeared all in the space of 18 months. Kim shared with John some very interesting thoughts about the rapid development and disappearance of a beer that, while having a name, never really came to be said as a style, at least in technical terms, and he shared his thoughts about what that meant for the beer. We talk about that and through that lens how hype and consumer demand for novelty, and also how hard seltzer are shaping beer style and development much more broadly. And always, we talk about a whole lot more. I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. John Hull, welcome back to Beer is a Conversation.
0: It's wonderful to be with you. It's you know wonderful to still be alive and to see the, the sunrise <laughs> every morning these days. The last time we spoke, uh, uh, who knew what was going to happen? So it's... Uh, it's every day is a gift and it's nice to be here.
1: This year is like driving through a desert. Um, like that, it, 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 you've just got this vast empty space that isn't um, broken up. You know, we um, by this time I would have been to the great American beer festival or the hop harvest or craft um, brewing conference back in April. Um, yeah. But none of those milestones that normally break up our year. <laughs> have, have we got to measure the year by? So it feels like it was last year that we last spoke on the
0: podcast yeah it really does it, it, it I, I was away this past weekend uh, with my wife and daughter and we were up in the mountains uh, in 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 the Poconos in Pennsylvania. and my wife and I were remarking on how nice the the foliage was it's autumn here and everything's starting to change the colors and we uh, you know, we we're saying, like, boy, you know it, it's it's so weird that we haven't done this in 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 the last couple of years to come up here because it's so beautiful at this time of year. And then I remembered, well, yeah, because I'm usually at the Great American Beer Festival or I'm traveling to you know one beer festival or a conference or something else at this time of year. This is usually the busy season. And without that, it's it's been nice to sort of have new routines and to see, what home is like in, <laughs> in, in in autumn, but um, but yeah, it, it's so weird that we don't have these anchoring experiences that so many of us have experienced for the last couple of years, or you know, or longer.
1: It's interesting you say because I've noticed that as well, and I've actually really enjoyed being able to plan weekends because you know nine to five, Monday to Friday, I'm basically um, writing about beer and running. Uh, that side of what I do but then quite often on weekends I'm hosting beer tastings or going to beer events um, and you can't often plan an entire weekend to to, to get away and I'm really enjoying that that aspect of my life. I'm sort of reappraising what my life is going to look like once beer events do start coming back. Um, Do you think that there will be a lasting event after we get through this you know, uh, about the, the the shape of beer festivals and whether there will be so many and there'll be a demand for them?
0: Yes, I do. Um, and I'll answer that in just a second, though. But it's interesting what you just said of reevaluating and rethinking, you know, what life looks like after COVID. And I've talked to, to, to some brewers, but one in particular, uh, Mike Palin, who runs a brewery in Illinois, uh, just outside of Chicago, called Microphone. And I was talking to him, I don't know, maybe about three months ago or 19 years ago. It's all pretty much the same at this point. And he was saying he was a guy who would go to every invitational beer festival that he got invited to. And every weekend he was jetting off someplace or every week he was jetting off someplace to do a collaboration beer or to do some event somewhere or some conference or, or whatever. And he'd been home, I guess, for that point, about four months. And he was saying that you know he was able to refocus on the business for the first time in a really long time. He had left a lot of things up to his other brewers. And that was a you know not a mistake by any means because they were doing fine. But he was able, as the owner, to reconnect with his own business. And I asked him that question. I said, well, will you continue to go to all these festivals afterwards? And he said, probably not. I'll start to be a little more... Um, Picky when it comes to where I'm going to go and how I'm going to spend my time, because he really was enjoying being home and really was enjoying being a part of his his own business on the on the day to day. So I, I think I think we'll see a lot of other brewers sort of follow suit with that of saying, okay, well, what's really important in life? I think this is helping a lot of folks reevaluate what they want to put top of mind in their own lives, and for a lot of folks, it's it's home and it's family, and that's that's important. On the festival side of things, yeah, I think we, I think it's in our nature that we're going to have beer festivals again. Um, it'll be weird if Oktoberfest never happens again in Munich, so I think it will happen again. But what, what they look like and how people are distancing or not remains to be seen. So, you know, I think some places and some festivals are built for, you know, a modest-sized crowd. You know, we have some breweries that have acres and acres and acres of property where they can, you know, have 1,000 people visit uh, in, in the middle of the afternoon, but, you know, they're never really going to come in contact with each other as opposed to something like the Great American Beer Festival, which is 70,000 people inside of a a, a tight convention center uh, where everybody's sort of breathing on top of each other. I I, I think it's going to be a tough sell for a lot of folks for festivals like that down the line. Hmm.
1: It occurred to me, looking at something like the Great American Beer Festival. Um, I, I remember writing an article about Oktoberfest and when it was celebrating two hundred years. I think two hundred years, and you know, I, I included a line: "You know, it's been held every year except for times of war and times of pandemic." Like uh, you know, and all of these beer festivals now have that line inserted in their histories. Um, yeah. You know, Great American Beer Festival has been held every year for what thirty years, except in times of pandemic.
0: Um, you know, <laughs> except uh, that one time, yeah, yeah. Well,
1: it's not cholera, at least, but uh, I don't know that.
0: But yeah, no, I th- I think this is this is going to be a, a a life-altering event for most of us who are of the age to recognize how impactful it is. It's, uh, living through history
1: as a yeah. as I've, you know, one of those trite but still very meaningful uh, sayings that we're hearing a lot of at the moment.
0: Yeah. For the beer festivals themselves, we've seen here in the U.S. a lot of events go virtual. So there's been, uh, in fact, this weekend is the virtual Great American Beer Festival. And they have a a passport where uh, if you live in an area that has some breweries, you can go and pick up some beer and maybe get a a, a discount. And uh, then you can go and log on to Zoom and watch some brewers give a talk and you can share virtual beers and uh, or you can drink a beer yourself and watch other people drink beer on your computer screen and 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 I've I've been to a few of these events now um in my house and you know they're they're fun but it's just not the same mm. you know it's 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 really not much different than you know sitting down with a beer and watching a movie or watching uh, you know the news or a sporting event on TV or or whatever except the content on your screen is is beer related <laughs> You know, so I I don't know the long-term, you know, if these things will will continue. I, I, one, I don't really know how successful many of them have been so far as far as making money for the organizations that are doing it, which is why these things exist, is so that companies can make money so that they can pay people and keep doing it. Um, And there's also just the fatigue, I think, that sets in as well of, you know, folks who you know, we drink beer to hopefully escape our house or, you know, to escape a screen, although untapped in some of the other apps, you know, uh, we're buried <laughs> in our phones anyway. You know, we're still at a brewery, but still in our screens. But but, but we, we go out to drink beer, to socialize, to do something different, to have something to look forward to. Um, if you're sitting, you know, on your couch in your sweatpants watching a beer festival um, in the same way that you're watching, you know, TV at night, you know, a, a rerun of a sitcom or something. It, it, it it loses something in the translation and it makes it less special, I think, in in, in my mind, even if it is a novelty.
1: Yeah. And yeah, I I mean, we could have a whole chat about beer festivals, uh, but it's the getting together. um, And for for me, that feeling, I've become quite enamored uh, or caught up in the whole idea of why we drink. And there's, a, a American, I think, anthropologist who's who's looked into a thing that he calls the drunken monkey hypothesis. That you know we have basically evolved because of our ability to consume overripe, slightly fermented fruit, and yeah. you know a, a lot of the reason. You know, so so that let us find food, it let us consume more food, it gave us evolutionary advantage because we could consume alcohol. But then that runs up with a um, um, professor Dunbar in England who has looked into all of the feelings that we have when we have small amounts of alcohol um, and our levels of trust, you know, it's made it possible for us to socialize with more people. And that's where beer festivals bring that all in together. It's you're socializing at at a time when you feel more open to socializing and you feel very positive and that just doesn't come through with some of the virtual events.
0: Yeah, a hundred percent. And I think that, you know, we, we are social creatures and by and large, you know, we do enjoy, I know there's, there's some folks who don't, and I, I don't particularly enjoy large crowds myself, but I do enjoy, I really don't, um, but but I enjoy the energy that comes with visiting a, a beer festival and, and seeing the merriment and seeing in one place so much creativity, you know, from the brewers. And, you know, just, it, it, it's a way of bringing people together. You know, we were talking earlier just, just about, um, how I've been trying to look at beer as uh, the great unifier, you know, because it's what we cover. And these days, at least here in the United States, everything is so fractured, you know, from 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 politics to the way that people are handling COVID to, you know, just just everyday life. And what I always enjoyed about visiting a brewery or going to a beer festival was most of that was left checked at the door because people were there for one common theme. And I think when we don't have these things that let us get together, you know, large scale sporting events, you know, where uh, it doesn't matter your political affiliation, but, you know, because you're both rooting for the same home team, um, that these losses of group events and community events, I think could have some, some longer term damage to just the way that we view each other if all we're doing if you know people are just being keyboard warriors and they're they're fighting on facebook or fighting on twitter or or whatever and they don't actually have to look somebody in the eye anymore it's it's really frustrating so (laughs) i i think it's you know and and i think that could actually have long-term damage as well
1: funnily enough somebody here um claire who's uh, my senior journalist uh read me a quote from Mike Tyson yesterday basically saying, you know, Twitter is a place that you can say things without fear of getting punched.
0: And I thought thought, COVID, you know, it's, I was thinking of that quote as as, as I was saying that because I've seen that it's you know it's uh, he yeah, he said people don't fear getting punched in the face anymore <laughs> yeah. um, because they're not seeing anybody and it's emboldened them to to say whatever they they want and I, I kind of agree with that as well. You know, but it says uh, something about
1: yeah. the times that we're, we're we're quoting Mike Tyson
0: like the Dalai Lama. <laughs> 2020 man, it's so weird. <laughs> Um, yeah, he's uh, he's not the prophet we need. But he's the prophet we deserve. <laughs>
1: uh, but <Gosh. laughs>
0: speaking of weird, there's
1: the whole. Um, one, and one of the things I was was really uh, fascinated by was the recent um, uh, podcast you did. And, and forgive me for not remembering immediately which of your many excellent podcasts oh, um, yeah. uh, you you spoke to Kim Sturdivan on. Um,
0: Drink beer, think beer. Drink beer, yeah. think
1: beer. That's right. Um, and uh, we, we, we talk about all of your many podcasts uh, on ours, uh, so we, <laughs> we, we reference them um, because they are uh, uh, just it's, – it's wonderful to see what's going on there. But I was really struck with the chat um, that you had with Kim uh, because you were talking about the Brewed IPA. And, you know, you, you, it was a beer style that just sort of tore across the, the, the beer landscape two years ago and then – I suddenly disappeared, you know, much faster wow. than some of the lactose fueled uh, pastry stouts and uh, IPAs <laughs> that, that we've seen. But it was a style that I thought this is a style that actually has a little bit of legs. There's something to this one. But then it disappeared. And it was really interesting to hear his um, take on that. And I'm going to do a companion piece um, with this podcast uh, where, where I do a summary of that, um, his, his reasoning for it. But was that why you got Kim on on to talk about yeah. the style?
0: Yeah, hundred um, percent. You know, I I think I mentioned it on that show, but I hadn't heard of the style. It, it, it was born in at his at his then brewery, Social Kitchen, and he. I, I was walking around the the Craft Brewers Conference, um, you know, which brings a lot of people from around the world together uh, to the U.S. every year, and uh, uh, Pete Slosberg, the, the founder of Pete's Wicked, uh, which was a, a, a really important early craft brewery here in the United States, which no longer exists, but Pete Slosberg is the, is the namesake and, and sort of just this, this wonderful guy. He made it a point to find me and say, have you had a brewed IPA yet? And I said, I don't even know what that is, Pete. And, <laughs> uh, and he goes, well, you have to talk to Kim and you have to go try it. So, you know, when Pete tells you to do something, you, you do it. And so I started looking into it, and I read some articles about it, and I spoke to Kim about it. And we were, you know, the the article that I did in the in the U.S. Um, you know it was one of the very early ones, so it drove a lot of traffic, and I think it got a lot of people interested, which was gratifying and nice. But you're right; it had this incredibly short lifespan. And I'm interested because you know we say we're living through history right now, and we are with, um, you know, w- with COVID, but there are beer styles that are being invented in front of us as well. And I think it's important to document them as much as possible and, but we don't often talk about the postscript. We don't often talk about, you know, what happens after they die or why they died. And so, yeah, that's why I wanted to talk to Kim to just find of you know, kind of find his mind, his brain a little bit and find out, you know, you were king of the world for about <laughs> six months and then, you know, you weren't. And, what was interesting to me, two things from from that conversation. He's at a new brewery now, also in the in the Bay Area uh, near San Francisco. And he had, I, I don't know, a dozen beers on or something when I talked to him. and none of them were brewed IPA. And he had no plans to make one. And here's the guy who is credited with inventing the style, and he wants nothing to do with it anymore. And that sort of struck me as kind of disappointing. Because I I agree with you, I think the style has some promise, but brewers here in the US especially were so eager to tinker with it and to change it around so quickly before it was even able to be established. Like, as a base style, like, we know what a British IPA should taste like. We know what a dry Irish stout can taste like. We know what an ESB should taste like. And then you can mess around with it afterwards. You know, you can add fruit or you can, you know, change the malt bill a little bit or you can go nuts with hops as long as you know what the base beer is. I don't think, by and large, brewers knew what the base beer was. And I don't think Kim knew what the base beer was because even in that first article, like, he was messing around with... When he was adding the hops, and you know, when he was adding the um, uh, uh, the enzyme to it as well, so he was still sort of figuring it out. But within in three months of somebody learning about brewed IPA, they were double dry hopping it with lactose and adding, <laughs> you know, raw sugar and <laughs> brewing it, you know, on a cool ship under a full moon or like whatever they were <laughs> doing, and the consumers couldn't get a handle on it you know if you went to three breweries and you said oh brewed IPA I'll try that it was so wildly different from place to place to place you know it, it just it, it it sort of died very quickly I think because of that because it didn't have a chance to grow it was just smothered at a young age
1: and that's what I find fascinating that it, it never got a chance to lock in you know to say, well, this is the style, and you, you gave some beer styles. and uh, you know, Pilsner is another one that I think of. You know, if you serve up a Pilsner, people have a very clear idea of what they should expect. Um, but then if you put, um, you know, call it a New World uh, Pilsner, then you know it's going to have some Australian or American hops. It's going to have something a little bit different to a, a classic one. But you know the base style, and then you can see where it is. IPA has almost just become synonymous with craft beer, yeah. not actually a style so for a lot of people they hit you know they, they try things that have got IPA in the title um that once upon a time sort of meant a pale ale with more hops in 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 a way but these mm-hmm.
0: days IPA can just about be anything yeah and that's it, it's it's interesting to me of before lockdown going into or you know before covid changed everything uh, going into a brewery and having to ask a brewer or a bartender, you know, what kind of IPA it was, <laughs> you know, because, you know, I, I, I'm still very much old school where I like the West Coast, uh, the, the, the the bitterness of hops. You know, I feel like if I had to grow up in an age where bitterness was a badge of honor, it's one that I still want to wear. And a lot of the double dry hop beers and the, you know, the juiciness or, uh, the sweetness or the lactose or or whatever um it I, I I admire the well-made ones but it's not something that I instinctively reach for in the way that maybe younger beer drinkers do today and so I had to ask like well what kind of IPA is it you know because it would just say IPA like oh that's our New England that's our hazy and it's like oh oh what else do you have you know like, I, it's not where I want to start right now and It's so weird that you even had to ask those questions, but those three letters, I don't think help the consumer understand what they're going to get unless the brewers spell it out. So I don't think they understand what they're going to get until a glass hits the table in front of them.
1: I think you've hit the nail on the head for my concerns that you know, for, for 20 years, we've been talking about craft beer becoming something that mainstream beer drinkers consume because it's interesting and it's flavorsome. But unless you have a huge investment in your knowledge and understanding of style history and evolution and trend, it becomes incredibly daunting. It's it's in in a lot of ways craft beer is even more fiddly and um you know daunting to to the average consumer than wine is these days because you need to know all of these things and that seemed to, to i just have this feeling that that's limiting the growth of craft
0: beer i do too you know here in the u.s and i've been saying this for a while but here in the u.s <sighs> craft has been 13 percent of the overall marketplace and you know it's 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 risen and fallen but it, it's for the last five or so years been in the 13 percent range. And it's been craft talking to craft. And there hasn't been a lot uh that's been done by the craft industry to try to reach new drinkers. And we're seeing it more and more where brewers are making crisp, clean lagers now, or they're making unadorned beers, or they are making, you know, pastry stouts or kettle sours or whatever that can appeal to a larger base of people. But I I, I still think that there is a I, I don't even quite know how to articulate it, but th- there, there's something that I think prevents a lot of smaller brewers um, from having a grander conversation with more people. You know, I, I think a lot of folks are just happy that there's people walking through the door and that there's the cash register is ringing and that they're doing okay and that they're not necessarily thinking about how to even broaden their own audience you know, beyond you know, the regulars that come through steadily, um, but reaching out to people in their own neighborhoods and saying, you know, hey, maybe you haven't had this beer before, but you might like it. Um, it's a tough conversation, I think, for a lot of brewers to have, and so they're just not having it. And that's I, – I, I think that is actually kind of going to continue to hurt the industry overall because at this point, if it's just craft talking to craft, eventually people are going to get squeezed out.
1: Which <laughs> kind of brings us to uh, Seltzer. Um, I, I wonder how much the – Rise of seltzer has been driven by it's just a simple, you know, it, it's it's just it, it's not bitter like beer. It's but you can still drink something that's fruity and flavoursome, and you know it's, it's got all of these health cues, rightly or wrongly, um, about it. And but it's just a, it's just a <laughs> with simple, a wink nod, but yeah, <laughs> yeah well, I, I worry with our laws down in Australia about making health claims about uh, alcohol, um, how long till these are regulated, but that's a whole other conversation. But I, I just sort of wonder whether, you know, seltzer doesn't represent a simpler time when we can just drink something fruity and sweet um, and still get that buzz on.
0: Yeah. I, seltzer is, I've had evolving thoughts on it. You know, when it first came out, I think like a lot of folks, I was like, well, this is ridiculous. And, you know, who wants this? And then I started going to you know, backyard cookouts and, and barbecues and parties and seeing you know what people were bringing and putting into the cooler and two summers ago three summers ago you know the hard seltzers really started to rise and you would just see people bring case after case after case to parties and and they weren't embarrassed about drinking it you know they 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 enjoyed it they enjoyed the the lifestyle of it they enjoyed the I guess, the taste and, and and sort of the perceived healthiness of it. You know, Although if you're going to drink a case of those, uh, it's still, still going to mess you up a little bit <laughs> because it's still sugar and alcohol. But, um, you know, so I started to change my tune and I started saying, okay, well, this is going to be, you know, this is going to be something that can bring, you know, new people into beer since the breweries were the ones who were making it, or at least here in the U.S., the breweries by and large were the ones uh, making it. And then my 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 thought sort of went to say, you know, to even the smallest brewers. Well, you can't compete with Truly, which is made by Sam Adams at Boston Beer, or White Claw, which is made by Mark Anthony Brands. Um, they 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 dominate the shelves. But if somebody is walking into your tap room, and you know they're part of a group and everybody else is drinking IPA, but they're asking if you have White Claw, if they're asking if you have Truly. There's no reason that you shouldn't have one of those on tap to offer them because that's money that would otherwise be left on the table. And then what we saw was a more regional approach to, to the hard seltzers. You know, the, the the breweries of sort of middle size that had a, a decent distribution footprint realized that they could never compete with Truly or, or uh, White Claw. But they started making specialized regional brands, where Ninkasi um, in, in Eugene, Oregon did one that's just basically in their uh, you know circle around the brewery, you know, a, a small geographical footprint. And New Holland did it uh, in Michigan around their uh, general area as well. It's not in every state that they're in, but it's it sort of conveys a sense of place. And I think those are working for the breweries as well. Um, and that's probably the future: is you know, small boutique brands or localized brands versus, you know, the big national players, which are really the, you know, the Budweiser of their time.
1: Look, and, and you've provided such a great summary because I, you know, I, I'm incredibly schizophrenic about it. On one hand, the reason we drink is as you say, for the pleasure that it gives us, you know, it, it shouldn't be an intellectual p- pursuit. It's a hedonistic one. And if, you know, White Claw satisfies that desire, then it's found it's, um, Destiny is a drink, but then there's the other part of me that looks at it and says, you know, no one ever left there, um, was inspired to leave their job as a computer programmer to set up a seltzer brewery. <laughs> you know, it's, there is Not some, yet. <laughs> well, yeah. it, it doesn't have that passion. You know, where craft beer was purely about igniting people's passion for the artistry of making... The drink, and then that fueled a whole generation of beer drinkers to have this very fierce loyalty to the category and this passion because they were passionate people. You just get the feeling that you know even craft breweries that are making seltzers, uh, you know, it's that little business uh, person on their shoulder saying, "You've got to make a seltzer. You've got to make a seltzer." As you said, it's you know, it's it's, you're leaving money on the table. Um, Yeah, which to to me is the, the, almost the craft beer industry admitting defeat for the promise of craft you know that, that um, what craft was going to be a revolution um, it's almost well we're, we're going to run the surrender flag up and we're just going to become you know, sort of multi-layered beverage companies um, and one of the things that we make is craft beer
0: yeah I, I think you, you sort of nailed it as, as sort of the pleasure of drink as well of there's something fun about tasting beer and I, I I do blind reviews for Wine Enthusiast magazine here in the in, in, in the States and obviously on Steal This Beer the podcast we're drinking beer out of black glasses and we don't know what they are. And there are uh, the
1: f- you have available for sale these days if anyone wants to buy them. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> see how seamlessly well, that, I work that, that in
0: there. Look thanks for <laughs> thanks for listening to the intro of the podcast. That's that's important. That's fresh this week too. That's timely. Um the uh <laughs> but the thing is, it, it's fun to pull out flavors of beer, you know, and see, you know, what hops are doing when they're mixed with other ingredients and see what, you know, what flavors are coming out of malt or, you know, if somebody has added something in a barrel or there's there's so many layers that you can peel away from a beer to really get to its essence. And it brings you to an overall feeling, whereas with seltzer, I, I don't know how much people actually – enjoy it or if they're just looking at it as an alcohol delivery device um because if white claw says hey this is mango it's just going to taste like mango you know there's there's no like, you know you're not going to get anything else out from it and it's certainly not made with fresh mango so you're not going to be getting you know mango skin or you know underripe or overripe or you know all of these things that where when brewers are using fresh fruit you can and it's it, you know, Doritos it's, it's yeah well let's not disparage Doritos <laughs> you know those Doritos are a lot of fun at 2 30 in the morning after the bar is closed um you know that's just you know that's just sort of helping sop up some of the alcohol so like let's let's not disparage Doritos but 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 there's no there's no soul to it you know there there's no You're right. There's no real passion. I don't think people are going to be, you know, opening up their own seltzeries in droves in the same way. You know, uh, artisanal seltzer, I think, will remain very much on the fringe, uh, if at all, uh, if it exists down the line. But, you know, yeah, I, I, I think it's sort of taking some of the pleasure away from drinking, and just giving us alcohol instead,
1: which brings me back to to beer and yeah. When I, the first article I wrote in Australia about uh, brewed IPA, I, I made the point that it further um, challenges the definition of craft because it, mm-hmm. you know, if, if you go back 20 years um, to the Brewers Association definition, which became the global definition for craft, it was uh, what small, independent, and traditional. Um, yeah. And so adjuncts um, weren't allowed and enzymes weren't allowed um, to the point that. In, in Australia, one of our big mainstream brewers, in the early days of trying to forestall the growth of craft, they created a thing called the Natural Beer Promise, and their mainstream mm-hmm. beers were only going to be used, um, you know, made using natural products. And they had this big debate about whether hop extracts, um, you know, tetra hops could be used and still be natural. And they decided no, so they went back to using pelletized hops. And then had all sorts of issues with their beers not being able to maintain a head because of the uh, foam stability that TetraHops brought in. But there was this whole discussion that no, well, we can't call this um, natural if we we use these. And then suddenly you've got craft brewers going, yeah, look, we'll throw you know all sorts of adjuncts in. Um, and just as I read this um, craft beer and brewing magazine, uh, which I think you've uh, contributed to. In fact, I think that's where you wrote your article about.
0: Yeah, yeah, I was senior editor the, there for couple of years. And yeah. then uh,
1: the the headline, think of all those brewers using large amounts of fruit puree enzymes to aggressively dry out the beer, milk, sugar, vanilla, and even coffee. Um, and you sort of think if you went back and said yourself 10 years ago, that line, people would sort of wonder what sort of post-apocalyptic world you were uh, coming from.
0: It's a 2020. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. No, you're, you're, you're right. It, it's, it's so bizarre. <laughs> I try not to get as on as down on it as maybe I would have in the past, um, because I do hope that by and large, the brewers that are still in it for rem- remembering tradition or trying to put tradition in the glass, um, that they're going to continue to experiment and you know putting lactose or coffee or things like that. And in some cases, it's a cheat, or in some cases, it's to, to you know to mask other flavors. Um, but I do think that if it can bring drinkers to the table and then maybe they're just going to work backwards and rediscover or discover th- for the first time, you know, the pleasures of a mild or, you know, the pleasures of a just, you know, traditional simple hopped pale ale, um, you know, that, that that's a win, you know, and, and I think there's brewers that are trying that.
1: These things are always cyclical, and you know we go from stovepipes to flares, and then we have flares with tassels on, and then we go back to stovepipes with tassels on as the you know, <laughs> fashions um, evolve. And I've got no doubt we'll be doing that. Um, my the the thing that I sort of meditate on is what it means for the business of craft. Um, where you know one of the things that's allowed craft breweries to to flourish was this passion in what. A craft brewery represents as opposed to you know a small local brewery as opposed to a big multinational company um as the passion bleeds around the edges of the product and you've got craft brewers making a seltzer which doesn't have the same passion and well you know it doesn't matter whether i'm drinking a, a, a craft seltzer or a mainstream seltzer because they're fundamentally the same thing yeah. does that then bleed back into well it doesn't really matter whose beer I drink because, you know, that um, AB InBev or, you know, the the Asahi or Kirin beer that we have down here, they're making really good quality beers, which is what the big brewers have always said. You know, our hallmark is quality and consistency and stability, um, which is some of the things we're seeing craft brewers aren't able to deliver all the time.
0: Yeah, I I, I will say that anybody who's a small brewer that wants to get into um, seltzer making that it is actually important to make sure that you're putting out a clean product Um, because there are, there there is a difference between, you know, what the big brands are making and that's what consumers have come to expect just because that's what has been poured down their throats for the last couple of years. Um, If the smaller breweries are making ones that have, you know, weird sugary off flavors or, you know, the, the, you know, it says it's mango, but you can't really find the mango, Um, you know, that could actually hurt your brand as well. And you can get a bad reputation, you know, if you can't do seltzer right, you know, what else are you going to do right? So, so I, I will say that if people, the brewers that want to embrace seltzer, you know, because they want to make a couple of bucks and they want people to come in and also try their IPA or they want to expand their consumer base, whatever. It's not enough to just say, Okay, I fermented sugar water, here you go. <laughs> you, you you really have to put some time into recipe development. You actually have to put some time and I hope that there is pride in a product that you know you're gonna put your name on because otherwise it's it's you know, it it it's it, it becomes as soulless as you know, the act of drinking these as well.
1: I think that's where I was going to because you know five six seven years ago you had brewers posting to social media their juice stained hands as they squeezed raspberries into the you know into the fermenter um uh you know fresh raspberries because craft beer was this thing that you use fresh raspberries and so look at my hands they're stained these days you've got brewers who if they were going to do the same thing they're standing there with a foil packet of highly processed fruit extract um yeah and you know the the it was a talking point for the brewer to be using fresh fruit, and that was what craft was about. It's almost soul-destroying to the industry to, you know, that you're just sort of using, you know, buying in uh, stabilised fruit extracts that have you know been desugared, and so you can make all of these quasi-health claims about it. No one's going to be celebrating that aspect of that category, and I'm wondering whether that some of that's backwashing into the approach to making inverted commerce craft beer.
0: Gosh, I hope not. But probably. You know, I, I, I think it's just sort of, you know, it what what's the there, there's that line of like, you know, if you if you if you can get away with it once, you can probably get away with it twice. You know, that kind of thing. And I don't know, I feel like that that that, that could apply to this situation. Mm. And, you know, I miss I miss those days of fresh fruit going in or you know, we've seen it with pumpkin beers here in the U.S. Pumpkin beers are really just spiced beers that have cinnamon and nutmeg and allspice and cardamom or whatever in them. And, you know, there's no real pumpkin in there. Or if the pumpkin that's going in for these that are being available in the middle of July now or August, it's all pumpkin puree that's coming from a can. You know, the the ones in that category that I think are, are still the ones that are worth drinking are coming out at this time of year or, you know, throughout November here in the U.S. where, you know, pumpkins are in season and brewers are getting them and they're chopping them up and they're roasting them and they're doing some cool stuff with them. And you're getting some of that gourd flavor to it as opposed to just, you know, a Starbucks flavored latte. So, you know, the hard things are worth doing and hopefully people will appreciate it. But by and large, I think, you know, if 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 a brewer sees that you know people don't necessarily care about the effort and they just want you know raspberry and they don't care if it's fresh or it comes from a pouch, it it it's it's hard for a lot of businesses to incentivize the you know the extra time and the extra cost,
1: which is always yeah the, the the race to the bottom yeah and 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 that's I I guess yeah that's my concern for the industry is that if some are doing it, you've got the people that are holding the line competing, you know, on price and attention and things with businesses that aren't, which is, you know, where we do see, you know, those uh, consolidations happen in, in, in other industries. You know, yeah. it's, it's very hard for the small local coffee shop to compete against the Starbucks
0: down the road. It comes down to just, you know, we all have to be mindful and thoughtful as best we can. You know, there's certain things that we can't buy, you know, artisanal. You know, we <laughs> there's no computers, really, uh, or cars. And or, do we want them? Do you no, want exactly, an artisanal yeah. computer? No, <laughs> Yeah, you know, the neighbor kid built this for me and you know, it's not going to work. It's not it, but 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 there are things that we can that we can do. And I think that as long as we have that balance in our life, but once consumers completely surrender to, you know, whatever's the easiest, you know, if it's going to a Target store here that has a Starbucks and a Pizza Hut, uh, and you're just going to, you know, get your coffee and dinner on the way home, you know, after buying, you know, your generic pants kind of thing, like, it, yeah, we've all lost, you know, but a little bit of extra effort by going to a real pizzeria or stopping at a local coffee shop, I, I, I think that that helps. It also helps with just community as well, you know, and it, and it leads to new thought and it gets us into places that aren't so homogenized and looking the same all the time that we just begin to turn to mush a little bit, you know, it, it, it helps us grow as people. To, to taste and experience and get out of what we're told is the easiest path to follow.
1: It's yeah. funny that you, you talk about homogenization though, because in, in, in craft beer was a rebellion against the monoculture of lagers. But yeah. If you look at my fridge and the beers I've been sent this uh, last month um, that are all basically uh, DDH triple IPA, milkshake um and you sort of going, well have we just replaced Do you one, lose a bet yeah <laughs> one monoculture <laughs> with with another one and is that you know I, I, as, as brewers all race into the same trend space where's the differentiation
0: that's a great point the ones for me that are because my fridge is, is pretty much the same these days as well you know like here's my you know my ddh whatever um a lot of lactose. It was on a. Uh, a panel for a virtual beer festival this uh, this past weekend, and uh, somebody made the joke about one of the brewers that that grain silo that they put up outside uh, isn't actually for grain; it's just for lactose. And uh, you know, <laughs> we all kind of laughed, but also <laughs> died a little bit inside as as, as it was said because it's probably true. Um, but I, I I do think that there are some brewers that are genuinely trying to not just follow a trend, but to really make a beer that stands up on its own and that, you know, they're proud of when it goes out the door and it's not just, you know, Hey, IPA sells and I'm using Fike yeast and, uh, I'm turning beers in, 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 in three days and, you know, cool, whatever. And they're doing it with a shrug, you know, and there are those brewers that are out there. Um, the ones who are doing it really well, you know, who are paying attention to hop selection right now in the U.S. because they have the means to, but also the desire to, you're going to get a better quality of beer, you know, from them as opposed to just, you know, somebody who's turning out turbid juice, as it were. And so, yeah, I I, I do agree with you that there are the homogenization of that style, but I do think that there are stand-up examples that are hopefully going to be that, that rising tide that could hopefully get the other boats rising with it.
1: Which again brings me back to the the chat you had with Kim Sturtevant, Um yeah. Because I was fascinated to, he had a very distinct thing that he was trying to achieve. Um, he, he'd seen that uh, uh, enzymes had been used in sort of big, IPAs, but he found that the alcohol provided a sweetness. So once you get over seven and a half, eight percent, the sweetness was there anyway. So there was this <laughs> diminishing return. Um, so he had this very clear idea of drying it out at six percent because then you get the, the the dryness, but then it becomes a cushion for the the, the hop characters to, to 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 rest on. And had a very, you know, he seemed to be very um, deliberate in what his approach was. And then every other brewer just started. His explanation was: every other brewer, they didn't have that same intent, and the style hadn't solidified, and you know they could enter into competitions, and it was such a wide ballpark that they just started. So the edges bled from the very beginning, you know, before almost before they'd been inked in. Um, yeah, and I, I, you know we're seeing that with almost every new style that creates a fatigue. And are we going to see a you know, style fatigue and a evolution fatigue where people just want to go back to something that they, you know, when they walk into the bar, they know what they're going to get.
0: That's certainly the way that I drink. I think these days I'm I'm always up for trying something new or, you know, I, I, I'm always grateful for the opportunity to talk to a brewer at a brewer's place and say, well, what are you really excited about right now? What are you proud of? And then have a glass put down in front of me. And sometimes it's something that I agree with, and sometimes it's it's, it's just not for my palate, um, you know. But but I'm happy to see what's driving them. But then if it's not for my palette, I'm now scanning the list for you know what's going to suit my palette as well. And yeah, I, I I think that we need more diversity on tap lists is what it comes down to. Um, a lot of the breweries in the U S where you walk in and it's nine IPAs out of 10 taps and the, you know, the 10th is seltzer, I guess. Um, you know, there's just not a lot, you know, it, it it doesn't speak to, I think a brewer's growth, um, or it doesn't speak to, you know, a, 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 brewer's real, I, I, it's not talent, but you know, a, a brewer's real dedication to beer overall um you know or thinking about you know consumers uh in, in, in a larger way so um I don't know I I, I got off track here but it, it it it's it's one of these things where I for for me at least you know I would love to see Brewers make something that is easily approachable uh and have that on offer but then also Indulge their wilder side, indulge their create their creative side, um, and 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 go nuts, go for broke. You know that's how Kim created that this brewed IPA, and for a brief shining moment, it actually it, it ignited the world, and everybody was paying attention to it, and everybody sort of jazzed about it. And I hope that if you know when the next brewer comes along that does something that can sort of capture the zeitgeist like this, I hope at that point everybody can just take a deep breath and be like, okay. Like, let's give this a little oxygen. Let's let's see where this can go naturally. And then we can start to screw around with it. You know, that, I, I, that's what I'd like to see happen. I, I, it'll never happen, but it, it'd, be, it'd be nice. But we will see innovation again in the beer space. We will see a new style that is created, um, you know, probably sooner rather than later. And, you know, hopefully you know, we'll learn from this.
1: And what styles are you seeing? Or, or, or what's exciting you about where revolution is going, uh, is there anything that's on the horizon that you think might break out?
0: You know, I, the Italian pilsners are really starting to take off uh, here in the U.S. A lot of folks are getting into the um, uh, to the nicely hopped uh, little little bitter side of, of of lagers, which is which is nice to see uh, these days. But I think more and more, it, it's becoming sense of place. You know, there are breweries that are harvesting local yeast and trying to to create their own house cultures where you're drinking a beer that is literally made uh with with the area around the beer around the brewery and that to me is adding some really fun intangibles to the drinking experience because it is like unlike anything else that's out there and you know brewers can cultivate it the way that they want or, or at least try to cultivate it the way that they want and to uh, you know, bring out f- dominant flavors that they think are, are 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 beneficial to the beer. So so for me, I think you know, wild yeasts or um, you know, cultivated yeast from native cultures, I, I, I think is going to be something that we'll see grow within the coming years uh, as as more brewers try to embrace that.
1: Is that a, a a marginal approach in 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 the sense that it's you know again. It it appeals to people who have that level of knowledge and understanding, but not so much to the people that just want to sit down and have a brewski.
0: Yes and no. So I think for us, if we walked into a brewery um and we saw that, I think we could be geeked out by that. Mm. I also think that if it was a you don't it doesn't have to, you know, be a funky wild saison. It doesn't necessarily from a house culture. It doesn't have to be um You know, uh, something that is just so esoteric that you really have to have a PhD in in, in beer drinking to understand. If you have a nice house culture and you can use it to ferment a blonde ale or, you know, ferment a a simple brown ale or or whatever, um, and those flavors can still come through then my dad can go out with us and my dad isn't going to, you know, he's not going to geek out about it, but if it tastes good and you know, you can say like, yeah, this, this was used with yeast that they pulled from, from around here. um, it, He'll dig that, you know, it doesn't have to be, you know, wild doesn't necessarily have to mean funky mm. as, as it were. And I think, you know, there, there are brewers that are experimenting with that right now because they understand the need for approachability for accessibility and, and not just, Speaking to folks who, quite frankly, are are, are like us and looking to you know, be tickled by 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 a beer.
1: It, it's interesting you say because one of the things, uh, you know, obviously, you I, uh, your podcast is called "Drink Beer, Think Beer." But it's, we spend a lot of time doing that, but looking at the fundamental difference between beer and wine, because wine has this reverence and this mystique about it, and I've always tried to work out why that is and and beer doesn't and the best that I can come up with is you know wine you know whilst we've been drinking wine for ten million years because it's basically spoiled fruit. <laughs> and winemakers love it when I say that um, but it, it's it's artfully spoiled these days but it's still yes. spoiled fruit um, you know and we, we've only been making beer for you know 12, 13,000 years once we became sophisticated as beings um, to harness you know a, a, that, that procedure and barley won't spontaneously ferment we had to you know be sophisticated enough to make a series of accidents that let us make grains fermentable so on one hand, but and, and that gave us civilization because you can't store grapes for a bad season, but you can store barley, you can store hops, um, and so you're preventing you know bad times. But then you can also make beer every day of the year, whereas you can only make wine once a year. And yeah. you know, in, in that incredibly important aspect of beer, that allowed civilizations and you know communities to develop around the. Storage of the ingredient it also robbed beer of its you know mystique because anything that you can make every day is incredibly ordinary and we shunt the breweries away in industrial areas as opposed to having to go visit these wineries where the where the grapes are grown um and, and that's a very it's <laughs> a very long uh, explanation just of saying isn't that what beer still re- represents in 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 a way um that the sense of locality doesn't come from ingredients being local. It's that it's made locally and it has a cultural terroir that represents that community. Even if it's just your local, um, you know, it, it, it's someone who lives locally and some in, employed locally, and you've, you've got your friends coming in um, because they're local, that that's what local means for for beer in a big way.
0: I think so. Um, you know, but, but it, I, I think that that sense of place for 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 wineries, where if you open up a bottle at home, you know you're looking at a label, you're looking at the way that uh, the winery wants you to think about the, the the wine as as you're drinking it. You know they want you to you know think of Napa, they want you to think of you know Son Valley, they want you to think about you know or wherever it's coming from, and. You know, with beer, a lot of the time our focus is on, you know, wow, you know, I, I I love the way the the mosaic is coming through on this, or, you know, wow, those are fresh raspberries versus, you know, puree, or, you know, we're not necessarily thinking about place a lot of the time when we're drinking, uh, when we're drinking our beer at home. Mm. Um, but I think being at a place, yeah, and that's something where, you know, the, the breweries have a real opportunity to... Mm forge that connection with consumers and get them to bring beer home. That if you have a nice experience at their place, uh, if if it was well appointed, if it uh, you know, made you feel a certain way, you know, uh, with the surroundings outside of the glass of beer, um, that that will translate later on. You know, wine has, you know, a pretty easy time of saying, you know, like, well, just picture, you know, beautiful vineyards as 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 you're drinking this, and whether or not it was made in a you know an factory or not, uh, you're still going to conjure up just this sort of ethereal vision of a winery uh, by and large. Now I'm now I'm getting all the winemakers angry at me. But, um, <laughs> you know, but but beer does have an opportunity to really forge that sense of place um, and to to help you bring that home. And if you had a good experience at a local brewery. Um, and now you're drinking at home, it's probably going to foster you to go back to your local brewery as well. Um, You know, versus, you know, then you can think about the hops, then you can think about the, you know, the, the malt bill or, you know, the, the yeast strain that was used. I do think that if breweries start to play around with a house culture, and all the breweries now have this opportunity or this, 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 you know, this path to actually do that. And it doesn't have to be for all of your beers, but if there is one where you can say, you know, hey, here's a beer that uses yeast that we harnessed from our property. I I think that's a a great draw for consumers. It's a great draw for drinkers. Um, And it really does give a sense of place better than, you're right, all these ingredients coming in from the Pacific Northwest or coming in from the Midwest or, you know, wherever it's coming from. You know, water is the only local ingredient by and large for most breweries Mm. and it's the one that we think about the least even though it's the most important
1: as i've been sitting here drinking my early morning coffee um it's evening uh in in in, now i I want
0: to say new york because i just think it is is the one area is is that offensive to uh it's it's not we're in the new york metro area I'm, i'm in northern new jersey but yeah (laughs)
1: yeah, <laughs> I just want to make sure and it wasn't. It's, uh, so yeah, bad. it's
0: five o'clock on a, It's five o'clock on a Tuesday right now on a Tuesday evening.
1: So, have you been enjoying a, a beer while we've had this chat?
0: I haven't. Okay, uh, I'm so, <laughs> that sorry, makes me feel better. I'm sorry to say, um, this might be the first time that I've been on uh, somebody's podcast uh, or even one of my own without a beer in front of me. Uh, I've actually been drinking just regular seltzer, non-alcoholic <laughs> seltzer uh, from from a Whole Foods market that, uh, that my wife had in the house. Uh, the date code says that it's best by the 25th of June in 2021, so I'm well ahead of the time. <laughs> and it's a black cherry-flavored sparkling water, and uh, it tastes exactly like black cherry. And if I put a shot of vodka in it, I would essentially have a hard seltzer. So... Um, <laughs> Where's the creativity in that? You know? but, <laughs> but yeah, it's the non-alcoholic seltzers are, and it's weird that I have to preface it with non-alcoholic now, but the seltzers are pretty much what I'm drinking during the day uh, before I transition to, to something else. But I think it's a bourbon night. It just kind of feels like a like a bourbon evening here. So, <laughs> well, uh, all, all once I on get here. the kiddo down to bed, I will uh, I might pour my fo- myself two fingers and call it a night.
1: Well, John, it's always uh, fascinating to have a chat. It's a great conversation. And, and thank you for all of uh, your, your podcasts. that provide. Uh, I, I know, a lot of our listeners. that it sounds like I'm having a go, but uh, you do no, have a fine. variety of uh, different podcasts all with a different aim. And uh, it provides, I know, our listeners with a whole range of, uh, you know, uh, it, it, it's great when we get emails saying that uh, if we go over time, it means that they have to run or exercise that little bit longer because... Uh, it it makes me feel like we we have a social purpose for our uh, podcasting.
0: I love that. It's uh, I I feel like I should probably then you know commit to exercising while I'm doing these podcasts. <laughs> Although that would probably mean that I'd keep them to all about seven minutes. But yeah, that's uh, thanks, pal. This is always fun talking with you.
1: And that was John Hull. You can find links to his podcasts. Steal this beer. Drink Beer, Think Beer and The Beer Edge. And you can also take a subscription to his Beer Edge newsletter through links in the show notes. Radio Brews News is proudly presented by Cryomalt. With over 25 years in the field, Cryomalt is dedicated to providing the finest brewing ingredients to help brewers create the foundations of a truly excellent beer. Your premium brewing partner and proud sponsors of this conversation and the Radio Brews News channel. Don't forget, if you like what we do at Radio Brews News, you can help us out in a number of ways. You can sponsor the show, either by a small monthly contribution or through a one-off donation. You can find details in the show notes. You can review our podcast on iTunes or your favourite podcasting service. Let us know what you think and help others discover the show.